Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 20. Please turn there in your Bibles. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Message today comes from Elder Brian. We're looking forward to God using him as he always does in speaking his word. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Ushers do have Bibles available. If you need one, just raise your hand. He'll bring one to you. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in strength and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless his word and those who hear it this morning. If you would remain standing, let's bow in a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for this day, for allowing us to come to once again see one another, to use our voices to give honor to you, to worship and to praise, to set aside this time in our day, in our week, in our lives, a time we set aside each week on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate Jesus today. He is our Savior, our hero, our Lord, our God. We worship him. We thank you, Father, for what you have done through your Son. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for calling us, opening our eyes, giving us life that we might see and know and believe. Thank you for setting your church, body of Christ, to be gathered in part today in this building and in places all over the world on this day. Lord, we see so much going on in our world today, locally and globally, that is just such a distress to us 
We wouldn't be able to take it if it had not been for your promise that you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail. Your promise that things will, in fact, grow worse and worse. But it wouldn't stay that way. It's just setting the scene for you promised to send your son back to take those who are his with him and to judge all others. And so we take comfort in the truth of your word. We also know, Lord, that this is a limited time that we have to get your gospel out to those who don't know you. And so we pray for energy, we pray for wisdom, we pray that we might use our time wisely and be faithful to you to the end. Now we pray for the preaching of your word that comes today. We pray for Brian that you would just continue to use him. May what he has studied to hear from you come out today in your word to us. May we take it, understand it, and be challenged and apply it in our lives. Bless your people here, Lord, those who are enduring so uh, many things that you will cause us to put our faith and our trust to depend and to rely on you for health, for strength, for finances, for our families, for everything that we need day to day for all of our challenges that we might trust in you. Bless this time now, we pray now, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Amen. inspiration you got regular service you got a meal afterwards and you got me in the middle <laughs> praise God well I thank God for putting a word in my mouth <clears throat> I want to give a special thanks to our Thursday night Bible study group um, if you guys want to come out and go through the word and get deep into the word that's a good time to do so. We meet on Thursdays at 6.30 at me and my wife's house. We have a meal at 6.30, and then we do go through the Word at 7.30, and we end, we try to end right around 8.30. And it's just a praise, and this sermon help is partly was helped by them because we're going through the book of Ephesians. And I chose this text, and God put it on my heart because, of course, we're coming and approaching this Halloween. It's a religious festival that celebrates spirituality, oftentimes that opposes God. And it's a, it's a holiday that has me, you know, a little bit torn. On one hand, you got the innocent going out and saying, how you doing, trick or treat, getting some candy. Who doesn't like that? You got some people putting on costumes and they dress up as, you know, a packer. 
What's evil about that? Nothing. Then on the other hand, you got, you know, what's going on last night and what goes on probably tonight. People wearing the most risque outfits, celebrating witches and demons. And you go across your neighborhood and you see sometimes more people are decorating for Halloween than they do for Christmas. And it speaks to something that's going on that's wrong in our culture. That we are starting to celebrate spirituality that opposes God. And the origin of this holiday is, is that. There used to be a day that everybody used to celebrate called All Saints Day. And so they created Halloween to be the day to get all the evil out. It's similar to Mardi Gras. If you know anything about the history of Mardi Gras, there's this holiday the Catholics celebrate mainly called Lent, where they celebrate Christ's approach to the cross. And they often fast or do something like that. And before Lent, they have Mardi Gras, where they can get all the sin out their system, apparently. It makes no sense to me. It's just like, you know, people about to get married, and then they have a bachelor party. And then they do everything they couldn't do and destroy their relationship right before they get married. Makes no sense to me. But that's the culture we live in. And so I thought about this, and what we need to do is we need to be armed to face this kind of evil spirituality. And in the book of Ephesians, we come to chapter 6, and that's the, the last chapter of this book. It's built on all the lessons that we learned in the beginning. In chapter 1, Paul prayed that we would understand the inheritance God had given us in Christ. Because in chapter 2, he explains we were dead, but God made us alive. We were alienated, but God brought peace with Christ. So chapter 3, if we understand the privilege of giving the gospel outweighed the suffering that accompanies it, Paul prayed to the Father who can accomplish anything that we would have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Chapter 4, Christ plundered men and gave them to his church so that they could be unified as God is unified. So the rest of chapter 4. So don't walk like the world in the futility of their minds, but walk as we learn Christ and speak the truth one to another. Chapter 5, walk in God's love, God's light, and the Holy Spirit's wisdom. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, all our earthly relationships should reflect our relationship with Christ. There should be order. There should be authority. There should be proper submission. And then we get to chapter 6, verse 10, and he says, finally, now you're ready to learn about the nature of spiritual warfare. And he starts off in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He first commands, be strong. It's a command. It's not an option. And lest we would say to ourselves, well, I can't be strong. I feel weak today, he says, in the Lord. It's not an option to be strong because you're not the one supplying the strength. Jesus is. We recognize that he is strong. It's actually a call of faith to say, God, I may not be strong, but you are. You've empowered me. So we can't say, I can't do it when God has empowered us to do it. And he says, put on the whole armor of God. 
then he says this phrase that could be mistaken. He says, stand. Stand. And that phrase is so important. What does it mean to stand? Well, he's not just talking about just standing. He's talking about standing your ground. What he means is you never retreat as a Christian. You never take a step backwards. There is no defeat. And there is no compromise, not with evil. I am reminded of a man who, in my opinion, he embodied this the most. This is my grandfather, Ken. People used to say that sometimes he wasn't loving. And that was just an attack and a lie. I, I never really met a man who loved people more than Grandpa Kenner did. He loved people deep in his heart. But he loved you enough to tell you the truth. And I remember one particular funeral we had. We had one of my cousins had died tragically. And at the funeral, the, the comments, right, and, me and that's why me and dad is always against comments at funerals. At the comments, this lady goes out and she says, hey, I just read some tarot cards. Here's what I think is going to happen in the future. And she starts to talk about her cult and everything. And everybody kind of looking at each other. And some people was trying to be nice and buy into it. And then my grandfather Kenner stood up. He didn't rebuke her. He didn't say it's nothing mean. But in two minutes, he gave the whole gospel. And he cleansed that room. And some people was looking at him like, oh, here he go again. But people who knew realized that spiritual warfare had just been fought and won. He had seen evil spirituality being praised, and he said, no. There is one way, one truth, one life. No one goes to the Father but through Jesus. I'm not mad at you, sister, because you're mistaken. I'm not mad at you. But if you keep going that path, there's only judgment awaiting you. I preach Jesus to you, to everybody in this room. Don't be fooled by the occult. Don't be fooled by Satan. Learn the truth. It says stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is not so upfront all the time. It's rarely a direct attack. He don't come up to you and say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to destroy your marriage. He don't say, hey, at school tomorrow I'm going to teach your kids something wrong. No, what he does is he say, hey, guys, let's be tolerant. Mm -hmm. We're not telling you to accept alternative sexual views. Just don't say nothing. Why you got to be so mean all the time? How are people so mean? Where's the love at? See, he don't like to come up front because light and darkness, there's an inevitable battle that's going to happen between light and darkness, but there's also inevitable victory. So darkness does not like to come into a confrontation that's direct with light. So what darkness does is it hides behind other things. It lives in the shadows. And Satan oftentimes, if good was white and evil was black, he wouldn't be black, he would be off-white. 
he'd be a tinge of gray. Because Satan doesn't want to be obvious. It's described Satan as a snake. And one of the hardest things to do is just find a snake that's slithering through the grass because snakes move in such a way that it is even hard for the eyes to follow. I remember when the snake came up to Eve and he talked to her. She wasn't shocked that he was talking, which is strange. But he knew what God had said. When he confronted Jesus, after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, he quoted scripture. When he talked to God in the book of Job, he didn't cuss. He said, what? I mean, you got a hedge of protection around him. But I, I, I tell you, God, if you do this, he'll curse you to your face. He's a persuader. He's persuasive. He has charisma. He's got what the young folk call. He got that riz. He got all that. Mm-hmm. He know how to talk you into some stuff. And the sad thing about most Christians is when they look at people, they think the spiritual battle is against people. They go out there and they say, oh, it's my public school system that I need to fight because they're the ones pushing this transgenderism. Oh, it's the colleges that I need to fight. They're the ones supporting the craziest ideas. Maybe it's the Islam that we need to fight. After all, they think it's okay to kill Jews and they celebrate killing babies. And we got all these different enemies, but Paul says... Our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against evil spiritual powers. Our enemies can be human, but they are not merely human. And oftentimes, the enemy is more formidable than any man could be. Ask yourself this question. Why in the political spectrum are there gays supporting Palestine? Now take a step back, get your political, y'all know some people are scrunched up, get your political thing out, let it go, okay? If you went to Palestine and you was gay, what would happen to you? You'd be strung up, three seconds flat. So why do you support that? People go to a synagogue and they protest. What that got to do? But what's going on all the way across the world? Why is it that people can join together and they can easily join together? People who shouldn't like each other could join together and hate Jews and Christians. Where do you think that hatred comes from? Why does a person that never been abused by a Jew hate a Jew? Ask yourself that question. It's crazy. You go and you talk to somebody and you say, man, Jews taking over this whole place. And then you look up and it's an Arab man that's running the gas station. <laughs> and I'm not against the Arab man running the gas station. He doing what he do. But where do we get on Jews? Where did that hate come from? Could it not be when we look at Revelation and we see the dragon is trying to swallow up the woman who represents Israel? Can we not see that Satan got a program and people are following Satan's program? Don't be naive, Christian. I had a lot of pastors that came to me during COVID and they were saying, well, the government said we should shut down our churches. And I think we should because they mean well. It's like, bro, 
<sighs> you know, and I just like, listen, let's just pat you on the back. You go about your way, okay? You're too naive to understand this. They're not going to come up front and say, hey, we're evil, so we want to shut down your church so the gospel doesn't go out. They're not going to do that. They're going to say, hey, for the safety of everybody, do you want grandma to die? I don't want grandma to die. I wanted her to hear the gospel. Well, then close your church down. And you could get the gospel out over the web. Yeah, we could do that. What about fellowship and stuff like that? Well, I mean, we're just pausing it just for a time. The Bible says, don't break the fellowship of yourselves. I don't care what the government say. We're not going to stop church unless we decide to stop. But we had all kinds of churches shut down because the government told them to. They're naive. Following Satan's program. He says, we wrestle not. And I know a lot about wrestling. Wrestling is a type of combat where you use somebody's momentum and misdirection against them. And that's what Satan likes to do. He sees, oh, man, all these people energetic. They come in a inspiration. Let me throw something at them on Monday. Oh, they could be on a spiritual high today. I'm going to do something. I got something planned for these people. He wrestles with us. But the key to this section of verse 10 through 12 is against. You notice against is said six different times in this section. And what he's doing is this. He first describing that we have a formidable spiritual enemy. Our enemy is spiritual, so it's not fully represented by what you can see. Our enemy is spiritual, so we have to understand that our enemy has the motivation and intentions behind the scenes. They never tell us what they truly want. Our enemy is not acknowledged, but they are in charge. Our enemy is powerful. He controls most of the world system. He offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus never said, you can't give me that. He was like, yeah, he do got the power to give that to me, but I don't bow to you. And Satan is intensely focused on power and systems to amplify power. So we must be strong against him. We can't be naive. We got to have strong minds. We got to have strong wills. We can't let Satan bend us to his will. We got to have strong love. We can't be turned against one another. And we have to have a strong purpose. We got to seek God's purpose. And we got to stay focused on that. So then he says, verse 13 through 17, put on God's armor and hold your ground. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take this helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Take up the whole armor, not just the pieces that you like, to withstand in the evil day. That is a combination of adversity, but also the fact that wickedness will get worse and worse as the days go forward. And we need to stand firm, not giving an inch to the devil. Now, he describes the characteristics that we need as pieces of equipment. You got the belt of truth. Why is it a belt? Well, truth should be something that we should be surrounded by, supported by, and it holds our sword. 
We're not ready for combat if we're not armed with truth. And truth is both a form of protection, but it's also a form of internal readiness. Do you tell the truth to yourself? Tell yourself the truth first. That's the first start. When you think about yourself, be honest with yourself. I just lusted. Come be honest with yourself. And that's wrong, right? I was angry at that person, and I cursed in my mind. That was wrong. I came to church, and I wanted to be seen, not God be seen. That was wrong. Be ruthlessly honest with yourself. Be helpfully honest with others. Hey, this is something that the church can improve on. Hey, I see what you said, and I appreciate what you said. Even though you corrected me, it made me feel bad, but you told me the truth. Speak the truth one to another. Don't lie to each other. Don't say nice lies. Nice lies create a whole lot of trouble. That's how people end up on America's idol and don't know how to sing. Because somebody told them a nice lie all their life. And they got up there singing like a hound dog and everybody in America laughing at them. And they think they Michael Jackson. Stop. He says the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate is the biggest piece of armor. And it protects you when nothing else can protect you. Listen. Righteousness is important. It's so important because it protects your reputation when nothing else will. There's lots of people who came on a job and they said, Brian cussed at me, he cussed me out. And the boss already knows a lie because he knows I don't cuss. If I didn't have a reputation for that, I would have to face that accusation. I tell lots of people, I'm not afraid of getting no HR case. Because I got lots of HR cases, but I won every one. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to do what's right. If you don't like what's right, then you ain't going to like me. That's okay. Your righteousness will protect you. I had a brother once. There was a person who broke down their car. And the brother went and helped him, but here's the problem. The brother went and helped this lady who broke down, but he had a bad reputation with ladies. He had to be careful in that. We had to correct him in that say, hey, I know you're trying to do something nice, but because of a lack of righteousness in your part, you weren't the appropriate person to take that mission. Your righteousness will precede you. Samuel said this before he spoke his last message. He said, hey, has I ever stolen from anybody? I ever lied to anybody? Paul said the same thing when he was talking to the pastors in Ephesians. He said, hey, guys. Can anybody in here say that I took anything from them? I worked night and day so that I could work night and day. I worked my daytime job so I can do my spiritual job. Can't nobody say I took anything from anybody. They had to say, yeah, brother, you're right. What we could say is this. Righteousness protects you when nothing else will. He says the readiness of the gospel of peace I believe that is being prepared to move by the gospel, not being flat-footed. It's an aggressive stance. Brother Mike going to talk about this, I'm sure, in his combat, but you can't stand on your heels when you're fighting people. That's bad, right? It's bad, and what it does is if you can catch somebody or you can push somebody on their heels, you can easily knock them down. 
That's one of the, my favorite things to do when I was wrestling in high school. It was called an ankle pick. But what it really was was pushing somebody so that all their weight was on one heel, and then you just lift that heel up, and guess what? They fall to the ground. They almost look silly because you're just standing there holding their heel, and they're on their back. And why does that happen? Because people are not ready. They are not on the balls of their feet. Are you ready for the gospel to go forward? Are you looking at the opportunities that God is presenting to you because the gospel is powerful and victorious and winning? Are you ready to charge forward? Are you aggressive or are you defensive? We got to be prepared to move by the gospel, the gospel of peace. The shield of faith that protects you from wounding attacks, from directions you can't see. Satan likes to throw little darts that you can't see. He likes to ambush. He doesn't like to say, hey, I challenge you to a duel. Meet me here. He doesn't do that. He says, he meet me here, and when you go over there, he's behind your back. Satan throws darts, and what can you do to protect yourself? You take up the shield of faith. Sometimes, listen, you will face adversity. Sometimes you will face things that people normally have to face. Death, sickness, loss of job, loss of money, loss of friends. And there is no theological answer to those problems. You just got to trust that God is good. Despite evidence to the contrary. You got to understand that God's righteousness also protects him. You got to say to yourself, God, do I believe in Romans 8 where it says you do all things for the good of those that's called? Do I believe you brought me through this life so I can live victorious? Do I believe that you have a purpose for me? And if you believe that, you got to interpret your struggles a little bit differently. He says, armed with the helmet of salvation. It's a hope of salvation that protects the mind. And there's three senses of salvation. I know people talk about the three senses of salvation. And there's three ways you can think about salvation. One is you can say, hey, I was saved when I was changed from death to life, right? At that moment that I got saved. Another one is you can say God is continually saving me. He preserves me. I'm in his hand. That's being saved. But the other one is what he means here is eternal hope. We have a hope set for the future because we've been saved. We have a destination set for us because we've been saved. We have eternal security set for us because we've been saved. And so no matter what happens to us here, we're protected. Because even if I'm going to be tortured today, I'll be in heaven tomorrow. And then he says, armed with the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. Now, he calls it the sword of the Spirit, and it's not saying that the Word is made out of the Spirit, even though we could make an argument that it is, what he's saying is the word is made effective by the Holy Spirit. And so when you hear the word of God going forward, it is the Holy Spirit that pushes in your heart. It's the Holy Spirit that calls conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that calls to mind things you might have did wrong or things you could do better. That's the Holy Spirit. That's not me, right? And the Holy Spirit makes it effective. It also talks about the fact that we use it. It's not saying, hey, this is your sword. Actually, your sword is in your mind. How much do you remember God's word? How much do you think about God's word? How much do you use God's word on a daily basis? 
That's why it's good for people who are new believers, especially even old believers, though, get into the Proverbs. I'm telling you, you can't look into the Proverbs and not go through your daily life and not quote Proverbs constantly as you're looking at people. And as you quote Scripture in your daily life, you'll be living Scripture. And as you live Scripture, you're using your sword. And you're honing your sword technique. You got to learn how to use it with the proper technique. I'll notice that in the description of the armor, there's no back pieces. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. There is no option for retreat. And the whole thing that brings this section together is, he keeps on saying some version of, put this on. Put this on. Now, I ask a question, an important question. Whose armor is it? Whose armor is this? Because this section came from somewhere. Paul was inspired by something else that was said in Scripture. And if you turn into the book of Isaiah, you'll see Isaiah 59, it says this in verse 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a blessed plate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which with the wind of the Lord drives. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, that he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. And he will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Whose armor are we putting on? We're putting on the armor that our father wore. This is God's armor. It's not just the armor of God that we put on these characteristics. We're putting on the armor that our daddy wore in the battles that he fought before. Because God is a warrior. I think about all these quotes in Scripture. Revelation says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's Jesus. Psalm 712, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Isaiah 66, 16. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. And then Jesus is described, I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Who's a warrior but our God? Who's going to be victorious other than Jesus? We're warriors. We are to engage in spiritual warfare because our father is a warrior. See, Satan's great lie when he talked to Eve in the garden was, if you follow me, you could be like God. But God's great truth is, follow me and be imitators of me like dear children. Isn't it crazy that what Satan promises, God actually provides? But that's spiritual warfare for you. In fact, that's all temptation for you, isn't it? Satan promises you love, but who has love? Who is love? Is God. Satan promises you fulfillment and pleasure, but Jesus, but David said this, at his hand is pleasure forevermore. He promises you unity and group feeling and inclusion. But where are you going to be included in better than the church? Satan promises you a family. God gives a family of God. He even adopts you as his own child. Satan promises you all these things so you can be enslaved to him. God promises us the truth and sets us free. That's spiritual warfare, knowing that Satan is always telling a lie. So then in verse 18 through 20, he gives this key of keeping our eyes on the battlefield. We got to understand that this is a duel, not a war. He says, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to the end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We got to understand the importance of spirit-filled prayer for the sake of the gospel. See, prayer is being alert and caring for our community. It's our way of watching our fellow saints. If you're praying for your fellow saint, you're watching their back. Prayer is what powers the gospel. When you pray for me, I will preach better. Because you're praying for the gospel to go out. Prayer requires perseverance. Because sometimes what you pray for, you don't see the moment you pray for it. Prayer empowers boldness. People say the word is going bold in sweet communion, and it is. But that's because people are praying in sweet communion. Thank God for you. And when you look at this section, what you see is he commands in some way to pray four times in order that he may speak five times. So prayer is a lot like cover fire. Prayer is a connection with the rest of the force. Prayer is a connection with the larger war. We start to understand that there is more going on than just my daily struggles when we pray. When you pray for what's going on in Israel, you're praying and saying, God, you got a global program. See, we got to understand that the way that spiritual warfare works, it gets, it's, it's like this. We each have our own personal duels. We got our own personal battles that we got to go through. As you go through your daily life, you will struggle with certain things. But we also have what we call tactics, right? In war, there's duels. 
right? If everybody wins their duel, you win, but also there's tactics, ways that you set up your force so that you might win their particular battle. But then there's strategy. What battles do you choose? What battles do you not choose? What fights do I take? What fights don't I take? And then there's something called grand strategy, or you could almost call it politics. And this is where you choose who's your enemy and who's your not. How do you act when you're so-called at peace? Keeping in mind that one day you could be at war. And the analogy for us in spiritual terms is this. We each have our own personal purpose. But we also have a church, which should also have its own purpose. But the church should understand that it is part of a larger church that is having a cultural impact. And that cultural impact should be met all over the world into something that we should call God's purpose. And when we pray, what we're trying to do is we're trying to connect with God's purpose. God, what's your strategy here? God, I see transgenderism is on the rise. Now, I'm going to speak against that. And some people are saying, man, I can't believe this evil is being preached to our kids. And what we can say is this. God has given us an opportunity. Because when the world gets more dark, the light becomes more and more evident. It is up to us to preach against these evil doctrines. And when we do that, we will show forth a light that shows to the world that there is something different in the church of God. And when they see that, they'll be intrigued. Now, some people will oppose us. And that's okay, because the opposition merely brings attention to the conflict. And the conflict highlights the contrast. And the contrast shows that there's light over here and there's dark over here. So at the end of the day, this section is about standing firm, putting on the whole armor of God. I think one of the cool things about going through this section is understanding what war is. War is trying to force the enemy to do our will. So whether we acknowledge that we are at war with Satan, Satan is at war with us. War is something where we got to understand that our personal conflicts are part of a larger conflict between good and evil. And God will be victorious. So the question is, what are we doing and what is the part that we play in God's inevitable victory? Here's another way of putting it. It is this. Our victory is faded we will end victorious. So when you fight against sin, it's not whether you can succeed, but it is how you will succeed that you must ask. I think about the role that this chapter plays in this book. We talked about this on Thursday night. The melodic line for this book is this. If we understand the heavenly inheritance God has given us in Christ through the gospel, we will strive to comprehend the depth of Christ's love together through the spirit of wisdom and receive a revelation of him so that we walk like Christ walks in unity, truth, love, order, and power. And if that is the meaning of the book, we ask ourselves this question, why does this book end this way? 
Why does it end with a connection of spiritual warfare? And there's, there's a few ways to answer that. One is this. In chapters 1 through 3, we learn about the theology that God has given us. But what's the point of those things that we don't fight for? God has translated us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. What's the point of that if we don't hold our ground? What's the point of knowing the truth if we don't stand for it? It emphasizes the spiritual nature of this book. And it emphasizes the conflict that's implicit in this book. When you look at this book, you can see all these different things being taught, but what he's teaching is there is an opposition to it. God has called us to his light, but there is a darkness. God has called us from being a dead to alive, but there are those who are still dead. God has called us to unity out of being alienated, but there are those who seek to alienate. But the other thing I looked at is this. If you look at the second half of this book, chapter 4 through 6, he's putting some things into practice. And when he says, finally, it has this impact where you're saying, hey, listen, there is no power in spiritual battle without unity in the church. There is no army of one. You remember that slogan? What a horrible slogan that was. It was horrible because there is no such thing as an army of one. There's lots of people who are going out there saying, oh, I got spiritual power. Without the church, chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, there is no power. There is no power without speaking truth to one another. Chapter 4, verse 17 through 32. Right? Without speaking the truth to each other, we will be an army without discipline. And what kind of army is that? There is no power without walking in love. Chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through. There's no purpose in fighting if there's nothing to come home to, right? What's the point of fighting if you don't come home to love? There is no power without order, authority, and submission. In chapter 5, bridging the gap to chapter 6, verse 9, he goes through all these relationships and he talks about how we should submit to one another and we should have authority over one another. And there's an order that goes in every relationship. And what's the lesson is this. There's no power without structure. We have a church here. We have people that are in charge. We have a hierarchy here. We got pastors here. And the pastors are submissive to God. But then the people are to be submissive to the pastors. And what is going on there? There is a structure that God has given not I have given, God's given that. So, I want us to beware the teachings of the world that go against this. We don't want to be complacent or defensive. We don't want to make our Christianity small, where it only impacts what we read in the Bible and it doesn't impact our culture, our politics, or our business. Because when we become Christians, that should impact our entire lives. We need to be encouraged and challenged by this section. To be encouraged, in other words, not to give up. Don't give up. This passage empowers us. Stand your ground. Don't view your enemies as solely men. When you got somebody on the job that's opposing you, it's not just them you should be worried about. But you should be saying, what is God trying to do with this, and what is Satan trying to do? Be strong because Christ has empowered you to be strong. It is entirely possible for you to be strong. You need to have a proper understanding when you go through this text. 
We should be spiritual warriors because our Father is a spiritual warrior. We should be strong because God has empowered us to be strong. We should stand firm because God has taught us the truth. And every retreat is a sin against God and a shame to the power that he blesses us with because if his power is infinite, there is no enemy that we should face that we should be afraid of. We should have a warrior's mindset. Just like Jesus was not weak, he was strong. And this is spiritual warfare, so we need spiritual means. Satan is likely to attack us by misdirection, by ambush, by underhanded means. And we need to be ready to face that. And then we need to put some things into practice. I would encourage you to be strong in the Lord by praying at all times, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the way you could be filled with the Holy Spirit is recite five things that you're thankful for. You'll quickly be filled with the Holy Spirit. Pray for the gospel to go forward in every situation. When you see things going on bad in society, you stop at a red light and somebody else doesn't. You need to pray that the gospel goes forward. That is a sign that we have a depraved city, that people don't even follow basic instructions that actually keep them alive. And so that means the gospel needs to go forward to impact that mind that ran that red light, that put them lives in jeopardy just so they can get somewhere five seconds earlier. We need the gospel to go forward for that person to value their own lives more than that five seconds. You see what I'm saying? We need to pray that the gospel is preached without fear, that no matter what the culture says, we preach the truth. And then we need to think about Jesus in this passage. It is Jesus who strengthens us. It is the Father of God and Jesus' armor that we wear. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers and dwells his word. It's the word, sword of the Spirit because it's empowered by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers our prayer. We need spirit-filled praying to have spirit-filled preaching. We need to remember that Jesus already won the victory. And he's going to return, so all we got to do is hold the line until he gets back. And because he won, we can and we will win. So stand firm and put on the whole armor of God. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We pray that you just bless us, Lord, to understand more and more your truths, Lord. Help us to win in our own spiritual warfare, Lord. To do what's right before you, Lord. To be convicted of your truth, Lord. To repent of our sins to preach the truth, to stand on truth, Lord, to not compromise. In your name we pray, amen.